Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. The title of the sermon is What to Do When You're Offended. What to do when you're offended. My first reaction is shout, moan, scream, give a cold shoulder and roll my eyes. That's a joke. Okay, cool. Are you guys alive here today? Did we get the coffee? Or was that just too much of a dad joke? There's a dad joke. Okay, thanks, Nat. Uh, and it's very important that we, we do talk about offense. I think it is uh, the seed of disunity. It is the seed of resentment. It's the crowbar that can get into the crack and make it a canyon within our lives. Our house is meant to be uh, standing as a unified body, moving forward as a reflection of God's love. And so to focus in on this, I think, is very important for us as a church. And I want to center what we are talking about today out of Proverbs 16, verse 32, which reads, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Growing in wisdom is both vital for us moving forward in life and also responding to life. Being proactive and being reactive. And God has wisdom for both of those areas because life consists of both, right? And if all you ever learn is how to advance, but you do not learn how to respond wisely to an attack then eventually that lack of wisdom will not only work against your future advancement, but it will chip away at whatever progress you've made so far. So advancement is what our main scripture describes as taking a city. It's the part of us that God designed to desire progress and to build meaningful lives, to have a vision for your life. And I think we can all understand that experience. We uh, if, you've, if you've had a, a vision or uh, you feel a desire within your heart that seems kind of impossible, you have that desire to take a city. And when redeemed by Jesus and stewarded rightly, this is a godly part of our nature, right? Absolutely key to that proper stewardship is God's wisdom. And God gives wisdom for how we can be productive unto His glory and for our good. I'll say that again, unto his glory, and also we still remain good and healthy and competent. This is all part of God's wisdom for living proactively. And when we heed his wisdom, we become mighty in the truest sense that anyone can be. But if we don't seek wisdom proactively for the other half of life, then all of our godly might deteriorates. This other half of life is the time you spend reactively instead of proactively. Part of life, like I said, is making plans and moving forward and productivity and advancement and taking cities. But much of life is responding to obstacles that present themselves to us. Namely, so today, offense. And when you start to do the math, you start counting it up, you find that we actually spend quite a bit of time reacting and responding to things that happen, especially things that have the power 
and potential to offend us. And if we don't have the wisdom for our reactions to these things, then we'll actually end up with less time and energy and focus for the advancement portion of our life because of our poor responses to a problem. And that, and that makes the problem bigger than it needed to be in the first place. This is why God's wisdom for what to do when you're offended should be heeded because ultimately it leads to the deflation, not the escalation of a problem. It provides needed space for things to sort themselves out, motives to become clear, heads to cool, hearts to warm, answers to be found, enemies to be made friends, and the devil ultimately to be resisted and to be shut down. Even better than all of that, when you face an offense God's way, then it actually invites God into the problem. Funny that. And you would otherwise become, uh, you would come out of that instance, that obstacle, that moment more intact than you did before. All that to say that your might is proven in the long run more by your responses to life's unpleasantries than your perfectly designed and executed plans. This is why our proverb says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In a world without sin, this wouldn't be a true statement. Sin is what makes this true. Without sin, all we'd need is God's wisdom, how to grow, how to advance, how to be productive. But because sin is a very deep reality, all of a sudden this proverb rings true as it can be. Whoever is slow to anger and who rules his spirit is better than the mighty. Whoever exercises wisdom in how they react to offenses and attacks and the letdowns in life is even mightier and better off than the person who proactively advances all day long but has no, no self-control, no restraint to, uh, in their responses and reactions to the stuff that we encounter in life. This is because, as I said, all their external advancements will ultimately be undermined and undone by their lack of internal restraint. They'll become victims of their foolishness. You ever become a victim of your own foolishness? Oh, yes. Look at this honest crowd. Well, three people were honest. I see a connection here uh, with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 4. So he wrote this, uh, this verse and this letter in the context of relational distress to the Corinthian church. Relational distress means they're all, got, uh, they're all against each other. They're all combating each other. They've all got their opinion, and their opinion is right. And they're fighting one another. So he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. See, Paul understood that Christians have a mandate from God to bring unity, to, to bring uh, His Holy Spirit into chaos, and stemming from His cosmic and complete authority to engage in a spiritual battle. And when we take that mandate seriously and we fight correctly, we fight with weapons that are mighty in... Yeah, you're going to get it right. Mighty in 
mighty in God. Wow, there we go. First, I want to pay attention to the inverse of what Paul says here, which brilliantly draws out the spiritual truth of our proverb here today. That only when we war in the Spirit and resist the temptation to fight in the flesh, do we fight in a manner that is mighty in God. When we believe our war, uh, when we believe our war is in the flesh, meaning, okay, we get offended, and so what do I, what do, what do I do to fight it back? Well, I, I give the cold shoulder, I give the rolling eyes. My wife's laughing at me right now because she knows what I'm like at home sometimes. See, I don't really want to say it out loud because I don't want to be quoted later on in life. Instead, I just kind of want to roll my eyes and <laughs> slam a dish or whatever. And sorry, sweetie, I'm awesome. Sorry, sweetie, I'm awesome. You're awesome. So we choose to fight in the flesh rather than in the spiritual realm. Then we get caught up in the wrong battles and therefore become voluntarily ineffective, impotent, and ultimately unwise Christians. In other words, when we are quick to get angry with someone and retaliate against them because they hurt us, not only do we experience that life is a, a, a life that is not mighty in God, but we also actively work against the possibility of a life that is mighty in God because we've switched over to trying to be mighty in flesh. You cannot be mighty in God and mighty in the flesh all at once. You got to make a choice. You know, I, I have a funny story that when I was uh, engaged to Christine, we went and picked up my goddaughter over in, uh, over in Highland Park, and we were driving it down to Santa Monica Pier, and as we're driving along, it was awesome, it was great. Uh, it was such a fun day, Frenchie's laughing in the back, we're listening to some David Bowie, I don't know, and just everyone's having a good time. We come up, and you know when the lanes merge on the freeway, and two become one? You know, okay, now I live in a world where one car's ahead of you and then you pull into that, behind that car and the car that's kind of next to you pulls behind you. Does everyone else accept this as a reality and live in that world? Okay, so there I am pulling up and all of a sudden this guy just starts pulling up beside and he swerves in and almost hits the car. So I slam on the brakes and I calmly say, God bless you, brother. And we continue on and we have an incredible day. The reality of it is, is I sped up. I wound down the window and I began to consult him on his driving efforts. While in the back, Frenchie is going, why are you waving at that guy with one finger? And I just said, it's... <laughs> this is a Hawaiian greeting. Is that what you said? Weird. <laughs> Um, and my, my wife-to-be looks at me and is like, what are you doing? And she said something to me later that, that really affected me because as a man, I'm like, I'm kind of here to protect and I got to show that I'm strong and someone's trying to hurt my, my wife. And he obviously wasn't. He was just in a rush. I live in a particular world and I have to learn an acceptance that not everyone else lives in that world. That's my key to driving a very politely these days. 
But she said to me, you know, I've never not felt secure with you until that moment. And it cut me so deep. I was offended and I had to learn how to respond. But I realized that anger is not the response. Anger is never the response. And just like the scripture I read before, Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength. I love that God puts an and in a lot of these things. You are the Lord, my light and salvation. See, I have a lot of bright ideas, but they're not ultimately salvation. See, I have a lot of places that I can run for refuge, but there is no strength in that refuge. When you run to God, you not only find refuge from the storm, but you find yourself being strengthened from the inside. I think a great question to ask yourself Uh, maybe not in those moments, might be difficult to, but after these moments and even now is to say, how effective is my anger at growing my marriage? How effective is my anger at growing the house of God? How effective is my uh, anger at displaying and reflecting the love of God? See, I, I, I know and you know that we are called to be a reflection of God's love to the world. He said that this place will be a light unto the world, that all would come streaming in. It would be the chief of the mountains. But it's really hard to display the love of God when your own heart has its hands fastened to offense, to anger. So we've got to learn how to deal with this. And this is why whoever is slower to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city, because you can only be mighty in God to the extent that you are not trying to make a show of your strength in the flesh. And you can only advance in God's purposes to the extent that you don't get tricked in advancing the devil's agenda. That agenda is division. That agenda is disharmony. That agenda is self-righteousness. That's why it's so important that the singers get along with the other singers, that the drummer gets along with the guitarist. Because Jesus says, if you come to the altar with your gift, but you yet hold an offense to your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile with your brother so that your worship can be pure. It's so important for us as a church to live harmoniously with one another. Thanks, Ella. The key is in the authority we maintain over our anger and the rule we exercise upon our own spirits. This is precisely what Paul is having uh, to do with the Corinthians who are rebellious and arrogant. He could have flown off the handle at them. Paul was no doubt one of the uh, brightest minds that has ever walked the earth. He could have torn them apart with his intellect, torn them apart. With, uh, with his spirituality, but he chose not to. He understood that God's goal with the new covenant is to build up his people, not tear them down. And that is called a grace culture. That's called grace. Grace culture is a growth culture. And this is true in your relationships. Grace isn't simply forgiving the wrong. Grace is using godly weapons to defeat the devil and to build relationships. 
The person who builds with grace asks, what is the power of God capable of doing where there is offense and there is hurt? At minimum, the power is, is capable of helping us to manage our response. Being slow to anger is the outcome of God's power. And even being like God himself, described in the scriptures as being slow to anger. This is ultimately why God gives wisdom for responding to life, not just moving forward in life. Because when we get, to the, when we get those responses right, we can move forward that much more consistently and correctly. In a sense, our wise responses to life's offenses become a u- unique doorway into advancement because it is an advancement that doesn't just sidestep. Doesn't just, that was cool. Doesn't just passively bury and sidestep these ditches, but it chooses to advance forward. And it also undermines the devil's attempts at sowing chaos and discord and division and whatever else he's up to. It's so significant that we understand offense is from the devil. The way that we react to those offenses is from the devil. If we do not correctly course our action through God's wisdom. So I want to close here today. Not necessarily close. We've still got a lot to get through. It's a long close here today. I want to look at three specific pieces of God's wisdom for how to respond to life, for what to do when you're offended, because if we can get our response right to the million offenses that are no doubt going to be coming our way, uh, then we will not only advance like we should, but we will do so far, we will do it with so much far less weight around our shoulders, burdens on our backs. And there will be far fewer successful stumbling blocks in the way. And that's what Jesus calls offense, by the way. He calls them stumbling blocks. When others sin against you is an invitation for you to sin back in return. That's why it's called a stumbling block. Am I going to stumble? Am I going to step on it? Will I just sidestep it and passively move through my life, harboring all of these resentments growing inside of me? Therefore, when it comes to offenses, manage the health of your own spirit. Pay attention to your own desire to sin. To apply a point from another one of Jesus' teaching, pull the plank out of your own eye before you begin trying to pick the specks out of everyone else's. Has anyone met Mr. Old Plank Eye? Yeah? The guy's like this? And he's like, hey, how's it going? Didn't say it kind enough back. Bang! offense. Oh, I'm going to come over here and I'm going to bang. Offend this guy. Just always something wrong. Good old Mr. Plank Eye. The Bible pirate. We don't want to be like that. Amen. So let's finish up with these three pieces of wisdom. (laughs) that God gives us in Scripture for what to do when we're offended. Point number one, remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. God is in ultimate authority, 
and He has ultimate power. God's sovereignty is so crucial to our offended hearts because that means we can trust that God is going to work things out. We don't need to take matters into our own hands and defend our own honor and slap back. Not all offense against you is a spiritual attack. Most of the time, it's just thoughtlessness. But every offense against you is an opportunity to win or lose a spiritual battle. Winning the battle is what we'll talk about in the last point here today. But the way you automatically lose the battle is by forgetting that it is spiritual, not carnal. And so you retaliate against the person who has offended you instead of responding righteously. Jesus lays out what righteousness looks like in Luke 17, verses 1 to 5. He says, uh, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. That's a weird promise, isn't it? It's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. That's you and I, God's children. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, and the apostles said to the Lord, oh God, increase our faith that we would be able to respond in these ways. He says, firstly, go to the person. Don't gossip. You don't need to go around to the Facebook forums and start putting up your, your little collective hate scripts. I don't know. You don't need to go with the gaggle of girls or with the boys to the bar so that you can moan and, and groan your way through it. No, it says go to the person. If the person who offended you, whether unintentionally or intentionally repents, then you forgive them and you move forward. To repent means that they recognize they hurt you, accept responsibility and change their behavior. If indeed it was grounded in some kind of misunderstanding. To forgive means that the slate is wiped clean. And you don't see that person through the filters of their previous actions. Now, all of that is if the person repents. What about when the person who offended you has no remorse whatsoever for doing so? And now you are even more deeply offended and you want to retaliate and you want revenge somehow. Even if revenge is like I do, cold shouldering or rolling your eyes, giving them the silent treatment. I'll tell you the answer. The answer is that you still forgive them. But there is another degree to forgiveness that needs to be understood first. First, I just want to say the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There is no caveat that comes afterwards if that person is 
they're, they're in a repentant state, if they're asking for forgiveness, if they're accepting. And the reason why we have been empowered to do so is because Jesus hung on a cross in the place of our offense, in the place of our sin. I just love that these are reminders for me that just tick the box when I'm going through life. They do not need, there doesn't need to be this repentant side from them. If they are unrepentant, guess what? I've been forgiven of all sins. I will show the same mercy and, and pass that judgment onto God, which we will get into. To forgive means to hand the wrong that was done to you over to the only one who can judge justly. That's remembering the sovereignty of God. This becomes incredibly important when someone isn't remorseful at all for hurting you because that's when you're dealing with a very unjust outcome, right? And that's when you really want to take justice into your own hands. And this is where remembering God's sovereignty is part of the biblical wisdom for responding to offense, especially offense committed by someone who is unrepentant. Proverbs 20, 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. The teaching is not even to say you're going to repay someone for hurting you because God is the one who will right the wrong. And He is the only one who can do it properly. If I take justice into my own hands and retaliate against the person, I'm actually tampering with justice because I cannot possibly see clearly through the filter of my offense what is just and what is unjust. This is why even human justice systems, which are imperfect, the victim is never the one handing down the sentence. That's the, ju- that's the judge's and the jury's job. When we retaliate to offense, we make ourselves the victim to be the judge. And that's why God says, don't repay the evil. I will deliver you. That is the wisdom of God. And undoubtedly it is the wisdom of God shown in Jesus Christ, who, like I said, went to the cross without retaliating against the people who put him through it. You can't go past Peter, who, when Jesus turned to him and he said, hey, you're going to deny me three times when I go to the cross. And Peter was offended. He said, never will I do this? How dare you say this to me? The rooster crows three times before, just before it. Peter abandoned God. He betrayed him. He cursed him. When Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared back to Peter, he said, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you three times. He didn't find the gaggle of girls at the bar, the boys at the pool hall, (laughs) the pool hall. He didn't go to the Facebook forum or to Instagram. No, he forgave him. He went to the person. He did not retaliate. That's good news too, because you and I as sinners are included amongst those people whom he did not retaliate against. You and I can have the same view when we are wronged and the person doesn't want to reconcile. We trust in God's ultimate justice. Not that we want that person to suffer, but that God's justice will be perfect. And actually, our desire by responding in a Christ-like manner is to point that person to Jesus so that on the last day, they will be justified in Christ, not judged by Christ. 
Isn't that an incredible thought? That your response to offense, no matter how small or big, is as a witness of Christ's love. That can radically change a person's relationship with God, with you, with others. That's a great responsibility to be reminded of continually. This means that in the present moment when someone offends me, my highest concern is not actually my own justice and certainly not on getting revenge. My highest concern is actually responding in a way that displays the love that Christ displayed for me on the cross. And in doing that, not only do I leave ultimate justice to God, which is incomparably more perfect than my own, but it will also open the door for that person to see the wonder of Jesus, potentially to respond to Jesus. Practically speaking, this determines my response to offense. In Romans 12, 17 to 21, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Honorable literally means beautiful. Give thought to the evil that was paid to you. Give it a beautiful thought. Ponder upon it. It continues on, in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's the sovereignty factor that is handing over to God. To the contrary, and this is, he quotes uh, uh, Proverbs right here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. (laughs) If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Figuratively. It's a reference to an Egyptian practice that a repentant person carried a pan of hot coals on their head, just so you all know. doesn't literally mean go to your fireplace and find some red embers. He ends off by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all the disciples said, increase our faith. <laughs> Point number two, practice the self-control of the Spirit. When you are responding to offense, it is absolutely necessary to remember that the only kind of control the Bible commands us to have is self-control, not other control. You can't control other people. You can't control other outcomes. But you are expected to control yourself, or better said, to be controlled by the Spirit. The final fruit of the Spirit that is listed in Galatians 5 is self-control. Self-control is not therefore a result of willpower. Anyone willpowered their way to self-control? White-knuckled their way through it? I have. It sucks. But self-control is a result of abiding in Christ, which is another way of saying that we develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit who dwells on us. And here's a, here's a cool picture to kind of look at this. In that Galatians 5 uh, scripture, it lists off the fruits of the Spirit. It says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think there is an order to that. 
Because when you are filled with the love of Christ, and I understand this in my patience, when I am filled with, okay, I love my local coffee shop. Anyone have a local coffee shop they love to go to? Melcross is mine. Uh, it's a little plug for them. But uh, the line is sometimes very long. Now, Starbucks is one of necessity for me, right? The line's never really long there. But because I love the coffee at the longer line, I will endure and be patient for it. When you begin to grow with the love of God, you will find an overflow into your joy, into your kindness, into your patience, into your gentleness. If you begin to get short on these qualities, begin with, where is my love? Where am I placing my love? What is my love growing from right now? The reason that you need self-control is because you will be tempted to act out of control, right? And sin in response to being offended. It's awesome that the Holy Spirit produces the weapons that are mighty in God within us for the purpose of responding to life's obstacles. God wants to help your response to life, not just your plans for life. The hardest part of self-control, and I am a victim of this, is not the external, but the internal. You can will yourself oftentimes into not telling someone off when they hurt you, but managing the condition of your heart after you've been hurt, is another matter for which we need the Holy Spirit to produce self-control that empowers us to resist digging the circles within our minds so deep that we feel stuck. I have a saying that I kind of do my best to live by, which is do not have conversations with people who aren't in the room. Now that may sound worrying. You're like, he talks to people? Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes there can be an offense and I, I'm driving home and I go, well, this is how I'm going to really respond to him and I'm going to go around and then I have a conversation. This is what they'll say and this is what I'll say back and it's, I'm going to get him. Anyone like that? Anyone have a, that little record that runs around in their mind? <laughs> Did someone just say, oh no. <laughs> Amazing. We need to seek the Holy Spirit so that our meditation can be on truth and not on lies. That's what I would call harboring an offense. And an offense is a lot like, as, as we've all heard, harboring bitterness, oh, he harbors bitterness, or yes, I harbor resentment or whatever. I like to see it as an actual harbor, and the resentment or the offense or the bitterness is actually a ship that's pulled in. And the longer that I meditate and ruminate on those conversations, all those thoughts, the more I, invite, I am inviting the pirates on that ship to come into my city of peace and refuge and strength. And I'm putting food on their table saying, here you go. And before long, Mr. Captain of the pirate ship goes, hey, guess what? This place is like Tortuga. Why don't you come? And it starts calling his other friends. One offense just starts calling his friends and the other one comes in. And before long, your dock is so filled up with bitterness. Your city is being pulled apart, it seems, because of resentment. The peace can't even get in. The joy can't even find a place to dock. And everyone on the boat's going, little joy's jumping around, and peace is jumping around, and grace is jumping around. He's like, I'm hungry. Let me off. 
We have to seek the Holy Spirit to clear out this harbor of offense, to clear out this harbor of bitterness and resentment so that we can live strong. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A lack of self-control, meaning quick to anger or quick to judge, doesn't just derail your own forward progress in life. It actually leaves you vulnerable to losing whatever ground you've gained. The harbor of peace being taken over by resentment. Ephesians 5, 26 to 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is a clear warning from Paul about sin, leaving a door open for the devil to begin influencing us. And guess what? Not dealing with your anger and failing to forgive those who sin against you is one of those sins. It's the sin of unforgiveness. And you need the self-control of the Holy Spirit to help you close that door and set your mind on heavenly things instead of sinful things. And this is hard, but as the disciples said, increase our faith. Why don't you say it with me? Increase our faith. And just as a practical note, we're, we're coming to a close now and the band can come up. Just as a practical note here as well, like I said before, don't have conversations with people who aren't in the room. Secondly, when I feel fiercely overcome by emotion, I have a three-prong attack. Remove, reflect, and return. Remove myself from the situation so that I can find a little bit of clarity. Reflect. I do not reflect upon the other person and what they've done wrong. I look at myself and ask myself, why am I wanting to respond in this manner? And then I return. And I think a, a few of us as Christians need to get the courage to return and have a conversation with people who have offended us. Now, I don't mean like little things. I mean where there is a real offense, that we return and we have a conversation. There is healing in those conversations. And then my third and final point here today is stand firm against the devil. Oh, I love that one. Stand firm against the devil. Like I said, every offense is not a spiritual attack, but our response to offense is part of a spiritual war. And the devil wants to conscript us into his agenda. His agenda is our retaliation. God's agenda is our righteousness. And in the case of spiritual warfare, the only path to the deflation of the problem is to engage and fight with the weapons that Paul called mighty in God. The devil doesn't go away because we ignore him. He's an instigator, a deceiver, a manipulator. He is a liar and the father of lies. His head doesn't cool, his heart doesn't warm. He is only to be conquered and crushed by taking up the authority of Christ and putting on the full armour of God. The point of this as it regards offence is that the devil is an opportunist. He would love every offence you experience to become an opportunity for him to bring all kinds of havoc into your relationships, into church, into your marriages, into your families. So don't stand for it. 
after you've allowed God to be the judge and after you've invited the Holy Spirit to lead you in self-control, then take your place and stand firm against the devil. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14 says, Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. It says in the Bible, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting him is standing in the armour of God. I feel like there are too many Christians who put on the armour of God. They think they've got it on, but they're sitting down. It's pretty uncomfortable when you go through what the armour of God looks like. The breastplate of righteousness, the the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the, the shoes of the readiness to bring the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit. It's pretty lackluster to be sitting down and it's kind of uncomfortable. That might be your anxiety of holding on to those offences. I should be doing more. Well, you should be standing firm in the armour of God, declaring His goodness, showing His mercy, reflecting His love to all of those around us. So stand against Him. Don't be casual about closing the door against Him. Don't think that forgiveness is a one and done type of scenario. Keep praying. Keep declaring God's Word about forgiveness. Keep being filled with the Spirit. And by this, you will resist the devil and he will flee from you. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give it up for God here this morning. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.